Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to James chapter 4. As we come, Lord willing, to the end of chapter 4 this evening. Would you bow with me in prayer, looking for the Lord's presence and blessing. Great God of heaven, be with us now in the service of worship. Bless the reading and preaching of your holy word. May Jesus Christ be the preacher of this sermon in this service. If there are any here who do not know him, please humble them and effectually call them to union and communion with him through the preaching of his word. May we live, as this passage teaches us, to live in time for eternity, always ready to meet with the great Savior and head and king of the church, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, James chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we've seen throughout our series... James is always calling us to spiritual maturity, wisdom, and consistency in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember how James covers a range of topics from money, temptation, and favoritism to conflict, trials, and slander. And while we may not be able to discern exactly why he organizes his letter in the particular way that he does, we can still appreciate that everything comes under the banner of maturity, wisdom, and consistency in the Lord Jesus Christ. As believers, we need wisdom. We need to grow in wisdom. We need to see how wisdom applies to all of life, and we need a wide variety of instruction on how to live wisely. That is one way the book of James is very similar to the book of Proverbs, which is included in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Proverbs, like James, contains that call to wisdom in many aspects, all aspects of life. James also clearly refers to Proverbs earlier here in chapter 4. If you look there in chapter 4 at verse 6, when he says, Therefore it says, quoting from Proverbs 3, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so you can see more clearly from this that a call to wisdom is also a call to humility. Wisdom and humility are frequently paired up in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 11:2, when pride comes then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Or Proverbs 15:33, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. 
So it is the one who fears the Lord, the one who reveres the Lord, the one who humbles himself before the Lord, who acknowledges the Lord in all his ways. That is the one who is truly wise. Show me a humble man, and I will show you a wise man. Show me a proud man, and I will show you a fool. And James here picks up on these things. And we could say that our passage now, verses 13 to 17, is not so much about a specific topic that comes up in life, a specific issue that may or may not have to do with other things. Rather, there's a sense in which James is showing us something about life in general. He is forcing us to ask some of the big questions. Are you in charge or are you consciously under the sovereign governing of God? Is your life a series of events that you control or do you submit to God's providence, his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions? Do you believe that history is the unfolding of your plans or do you believe that history is the unfolding of God's eternal purpose whereby he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass? These are not issues that are only the purview of professional theologians. These are not issues for us to consider once or even occasionally and then move on with our lives as if it had no difference to make. These are issues of everyday practical significance for all of God's people. In the words of Henry Alford, this passage here serves as a warning for Christians who are in the habit of leaving God out of their thoughts and plans. We are rebuked here. We are corrected in our arrogant self-sufficiency. That, again, is reminiscent of Proverbs. James seems to be expanding upon, especially Proverbs 27, verse 1, which says this, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. So this one who, who leans on his own understanding, who is wise in his own eyes, who has a naive confidence in the future, that man, that woman, that child is a fool. Boasting about the future, assuming that you know what will happen, that you have some control over the future, that shows that you have set yourself up in the place of the almighty and sovereign God of history. What James wants us to see here is that you and I, mere creatures, are not in control of our own lives, certainly not in control of history as a whole. We are under the perfect reign of God himself. One commentary I found on Proverbs puts it well, that the wise live day by day, trusting the outcome to God and being grateful to God for whatever he grants. So James is expanding on all this here. He wants us to be reoriented, to have a proper view, if you like, a proper philosophy of history. And so he is contrasting most, most deeply He's contrasting for us two radically different understandings of history, a Christian understanding and a pagan understanding. A pagan understanding, a non-believing understanding of history, that explains all things in terms of history itself, all things being determined in some measure by time, even God himself being determined by time. But the Christian understanding of history, 
explains all things in terms of the eternal counsel of God prior to history and determinative of history. A pagan understanding of history, it arrogantly assumes that man is able to fathom all that will come to pass, and that if man cannot comprehend it, then not even God could comprehend it. But the Christian understanding of history, it humbly submits before the sovereign Lord of history, even and especially when we do not understand why things happen as they do. And that is exactly the response, the, the call that James wants us to respond to here, humility and reverence before the Lord as we live before his face. There are multiple good ways to outline this passage. I'm going to look at this in five points, each verse being one point. Arrogant planning, a reality check, humble planning, the evil of arrogant planning, and plan accordingly. Now, when I say plan or planning this evening, I don't just mean when you literally sit down to make plans, meal planning, day planning, semester planning, or whatever else. That, of course, is included. But when I say planning, that is shorthand for how you go about all of your life. So first of all, in verse 13, we see arrogant planning, arrogant planning. Verse 13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make, make a profit. Notice the way that Pastor James addresses us here. It is a little more in your face. It is not the, the warm use of brother, as we've seen throughout the rest of the epistle, or at least in places. Often he has that, that warm brotherly address, reminding us of our calling and responsibility. Here he's not reminding us, he is correcting us. He's saying, come on, listen, listen up, pay attention. This is more of a fatherly rebuke than a brotherly reminder. Now before we move on, let's get a couple misunderstandings out of the way. One misunderstanding is that James is rebuking us for making plans. That's not what he's saying. Think of uh, just, just one example, think in, in the book of Proverbs, how it tells the sluggard, the lazy person, to go to the ant. Without any su supervision, without any, anyone overlooking the ant, the ant is industrious. In particular, in Proverbs 6, the ant prepares her bread in summer. So making plans, making preparations is a part of wisdom. James does not rebuke us for making plans. The second misunderstanding is that James is rebuking us for seeking financial profit. That is not what he's saying here. There may have been merchants in this first century context, in this original congregation that James writes to, who were relatively wealthy. They went about and did business ventures. James may have them in mind here. But just looking ahead to verse 15, the, the corrective James gives is not, you shouldn't trade and make a profit. He doesn't say anything about that per se. This is not a rebuke of capitalist greed, as that economic system is sometimes unfairly called. So we're not talking about either of those two, of those two things, making plans or business ventures per se. 
James, as with the rest of Scripture, the, the concern is deeper than that. He's talking about what's underneath your plans, what's underneath your business ventures, what's underneath the way you go about your day-to-day life. And the underlying attitude is this, getting at all of those issues, underneath all those issues, you are confident in yourself. You are self-sufficient. So don't you see that James has to rebuke us for this? He has to humble us before the sovereign Lord of history, going about life with no regard for God's will. These merchants, just in this specific instance he mentions, these business people that James mentions here, although that's a representative of all of us, what do they do in in verse 13? They decide where to go. They decide when to go. They decide how long they'll be there. They decide what the outcome of their plans is. So, what's, so think about this question. Who's in charge in that situation? Man is in charge. Does that sound like you? Does that sound like me? Of course it does. Well, what's the problem with that, of us being in charge? Well, it misses just that one small thing. It's missing any acknowledgement of God, of God's lordship, of God's will. The situation that James sets up there in verse 13 That is a godless universe. It is a place where I am in charge. I love the way how Thomas Manton puts it, that when men multiply endeavors, they little think of God. Now again, having endeavors, having plans is not wrong, but having godless endeavors and plans is. It is pride to go about your life not acknowledging God's providence, not depending upon Him in prayer, not asking him for your needs, not thanking him for your gifts and graces. Calvin says that James rebukes us here for the arrogance of mind that men should forget their own weakness and speak and live presumptuously. This is a heart that is focused on this world, this world of, of sight, not the next, the, the, the world um, yet to come that is invisible. This is a heart that is self-sufficient rather than God-dependent. That leads us to the second point. Secondly, a reality check. A reality check. Verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This is where the fatherly rebuke comes in more strongly. James is calling us to listen, to wake up from the slumbers of pride. And he holds nothing back here, does he? You're going to go about your life and do your thing? Let me remind you, your life is brief and it is uncertain. You have no guarantees about tomorrow. You have no promise from God that there will be another day after this one. So yes, you must make plans. You must make wise plans. Part of wisdom is thinking ahead. But wisdom also knows that we must see time in light of eternity. In a real sense, not going against the the wisdom of thinking ahead and being industrious and making plans, in a real sense, you must live each day as if it were the very last day. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. All your plans, merchants, whomever else, all your plans 
could change and fall apart? And do I need to say that in the past year in God's providence, that has happened to each one of us? You do not know what tomorrow will bring. You don't even know if there will be a tomorrow. Your life is a vapor. It is a mist or a smoke even. It is so short. Here one moment and gone the next. If you are self-sufficient and you, you rely on there being a tomorrow, I'll put off doing holy business with God and I'll put off thinking about eternity until tomorrow, then I would guess that you are relying on countless tomorrows. I have plenty of time to do what, what I want to do. And I have plenty of time to repent. So I will just go ahead and pencil that in right until the moment I go into eternity. Again, you have no guarantee of that. You know this. Deep down, you know this. Your life is short and uncertain. I like the way Sinclair Ferguson summarizes what's going on here. How for the, for the arrogant, for the self-sufficient, life seems long and eternity seems distant. But the truth is the reverse. Life is short and eternity is near. Just as a vapor comes and goes so quickly, so also your life goes quickly. You are standing, at this very moment, you are standing at the edge of eternity. Be sure you are ready to meet a holy God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But now James shows us, thirdly, humble planning. We've seen arrogant planning. Now we see, thirdly, humble planning. That's in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We've seen what arrogant planning looks like. Now here is what humble planning looks, looks like. I must acknowledge the Lord. I must acknowledge his will in all of my plans and ventures. If the Lord wills, I will do fill in the blank. Lord willing, I will do fill in the blank. So is, is James exhorting us to actually say those words, if the Lord wills? Yes, I, I think he is. It would be wise to to make this part of the way we speak. But it's worth noting that these are not magic words. This is not an incantation that will automatically bring your plans to pass. It's actually better than that. Because a heart that says, if the Lord wills, is a heart that is consciously, explicitly dependent on His will. It is a heart that realizes He is in charge and I am not. He is sovereign, and I am his servant. Time is in his hands, not in mine. This is, a, this is a new posture of the heart, one that is not arrogantly self-sufficient, but humbly dependent upon what God has purposed. What James has in mind here, at least in the background, is God's eternal decree. And it's hard to say it better than chapter three of our Confession of Faith, how God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And so acknowledging, if the Lord wills, I will do this, that acknowledges that he has ordered all that will happen. My, my plans are part of his plan as he sees fit. 
And you know from our, from our catechism that one of the ways God executes his decrees, he unfolds his eternal decree, is in his providence. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most holy and and wise providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Again, this is a heart that acknowledges, at least in seed form, all of those rich things, that he is in charge and I am not. Functionally, if you make plans apart from apart consciously from acknowledging the providence and the decree of God, you live in a blind chance universe ruled by fate. Some have called this practical atheism, that you live as if God does not exist. Or it could be practical deism. Sure, God exists, but I'm going to get this little sliver of life. I'm going to control that one. If you did live in a blind chance universe, then why wouldn't you go about your life in a self-sufficient way? Of course, Get after it. Go make your plans and, and go, go do whatever you want. Nobody else would be in charge that you would have to answer to. But that is not the universe you live in. You live in the universe not where you are self-sufficient, but where the triune God is all-sufficient and he is the Lord of all of history. It is his will that determines all Our forefathers have talked about how God's will determines all things. Creation, preservation, government, Christ's suffering, election, reprobation, regeneration, sanctification, the suffering of believers, our life and lot, even the most minute details of life, all determined by God's will. God's will is comprehensive. But notice here in in verse 15, it is, of course, appropriate that we have talked about the, the will of God from, from, this, from this passage and others. But James does not say, if God wills, does he? What does he say? He says, if the Lord wills. Now, is, is there a huge difference? I think that there, there might possibly be a difference there in saying, if the Lord wills. Think back to to chapter 2, that instruction on, or rather, against favoritism. What is one reason we cannot say that this guy is rich and so he he should be ruling elder and and pay our budget and that sort of thing, but this poor guy, he doesn't matter? What is is one reason we do not endorse favoritism in the body of Christ? Chapter 2, verse 1, we all stand before our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So with that background in mind, in in this very letter, the Lord, possibly being the Lord of glory, the risen Jesus Christ, it's possible that when James says here in chapter 4, if the Lord wills, he's referring specifically to the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ, Christ in his resurrection glory. Think of just, just a couple passages of the, of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ as raised from the dead, as the head and king of the church, 
as the life-giving spirit, the one declared to be the son of God in power, as Paul says in Romans 1, the power of what? Of resurrection, life, and glory from the dead. Matthew 28, 18, the Great Commission. Who is it specifically that gives the apostles that commission to take the gospel to the Jews and Gentiles? It is the risen Christ who says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is, yes, he is the king because he is God, but he, he is the king because he has been raised from the dead. Or Ephesians 1, Paul there speaking of Christ, seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And the Father put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so, this understanding that James may be talking about the risen Christ here, if he wills, if that risen Lord wills, James may be pressing home to us, not just, if I could put it this way, a generic affirmation of God's sovereignty, he may also be showing us that it is Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, who is sovereign over all of history for the good of his church and for his glory. This phrase there in, in verse 15, if the Lord wills in its various forms, um, if God wills, if the gods will, if the fates will, those, those phrases go, go way back before James. And, and is, uh, those phrases are used even among the pagans, uh, among the non-believers. It goes back at least to, to Plato and perhaps to, to Seneca and others, to uh, be, being used by non-Christians. And so, again, this is a reminder that James is not merely saying, add this to your vocabulary. Say if the Lord wills, because even the pagans can do that. We can do a little better than the pagans, though, can't we? Any pagan can realize my plans might fall apart. Any pagan can realize that. Any unbeliever knows that plans change, things don't always go the way you expect, life is short, if a higher power wills, any, any non-believer can affirm that. James is telling us to do something deeper, to repent and to change the posture of your heart. Anyone can recognize Life is short and uncertain, and things change. But only the believer can recognize, as James is telling us to recognize, the triune God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. My life is subordinate to his will, and Jesus Christ is the risen and reigning King of kings and my King. That is what we should have in mind when we acknowledge, whether explicitly or implicitly, if the Lord wills. That leads us, fourthly, to the evil of arrogant planning. The evil of arrogant planning. Verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So revisiting that arrogant planning he mentioned at the beginning, as if it wasn't obvious, he now makes, makes obvious the quality of that arrogant planning we saw earlier. It's not just arrogant, it is wicked. 
Do you remember that parable of the rich fool that Jesus tells in, in Luke 12? When he says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will, I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And that is just another example of prioritizing this world over the world to come, as we see James is doing here, or James is warning against rather here. Such planning without regard to God's will and providence, it is arrogant, it is more so evil, it is foolish. The self-sufficient, as James says there, they boast in these things. They don't just do them, they glory in them. That is quite different, isn't it, from the boast of those who are truly wise. Wisdom does boast. It does glory in something. It does not boast in the future. Wisdom does not pretend to know what will happen tomorrow. But wisdom does boast in something. What is it? What, what is precious to those who are wise? Think of Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. And one way to do that is to acknowledge his providence over your life in all your ventures. If the Lord wills, I'm boasting in him, acknowledging that he is in control. The fool boasts in his own plans, his own abilities, his competence, his resources. But the humility of wisdom boasts in friendship with the God who has ordained all things and who orders all things absolutely perfectly. That is what wisdom says. I want his will. May he make my plans fit within his will. And if they don't fit, then may they be disregarded. May my plans fit within his perfect will. Like the way Matthew Henry puts it, if we rejoice in God that our times are in his hand, that all events are at his disposal, that he is our God in covenant, this rejoicing is good. The wisdom, power, and providence of God are then concerned to make all things work together for our good. But if we, if we rejoice in our own vain confidence, and presumptuous boasts, this is evil. It is an evil carefully to be avoided by all wise and good men. That leads us fifthly and finally, plan accordingly. Plan accordingly. That's there in verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now this could very well be used and and is often used as a proof text to speak of the sins of omission. They're not just sins of commission, doing the things you shouldn't do. There are also sins of omission, 
omitting your duty, not doing the thing you ought to do. So sin is not just about the things you do. Sin is also about not doing the things you ought to do. And that, of course, in general, is involved in what James is saying here in verse 17. But James is not just shift gears and change to something different. He speaks in the context of the passage. So I think James is saying, in other words, Christian, you know better. Christian, you know better. You know better than to live independently of the Lord. You know that sovereign grace saved you. You know that sovereign grace will bring you home. So you should know that sovereign grace should rule you, too, in the middle. You know better than to try and worm your way out from under his sovereign rule and care. You know that he is in charge. So live accordingly. Douglas Moo is helpful here. James has urged us to take the Lord into consideration in all our planning. We therefore have no excuse in this matter. We know what we are to do. To fail now to do it, James wants to make clear, is sin. We cannot take refuge in the plea that we have done nothing positively wrong. So yes, make your plans. Live life. Go about your lawful ventures. But make your plans consciously, explicitly, under the Lord's sovereign will and rule. Live before his face. Acknowledge him. Submit to his decree, to his providence. And glory in the fact that you are not on the throne, but that perfect, absolute wisdom is. Ultimately, most importantly, since you do not know what tomorrow will bring, You must be ready at every point to step into eternity, into the presence of God, either in ultimate wrath or in ultimate blessing. There is no promise that there will be tomorrow. There is promise that as long as history endures, we will have God's grace and that God's grace will bring us home. But there is no promise that there will be a tomorrow. There may not be a February 22nd. And that means that you need to repent today. Listen to this counsel from Thomas Watson. This is especially good for young people. And we've got a couple minutes, so I'll, I'll go this direction. I especially see this needed in graduation ceremonies. Now, I can say this because I've graduated from schools and I've been part of graduations. And I mean no unnecessary offense here. But there is this air of once you leave this place, 18-year-old, 22-year-old, 30-year-old, whichever level you're at, you're going to go out, you're going to change the world. You got your whole life ahead of you. You just have everything before you, and you're just going to go out and do great. And you're the best thing that's ever happened since sliced bread. We need some graduation speeches on what is your life. You are a mist that soon vanishes. We need to live every day as if it were our last, being ready to enter into eternity. And again, that is not to to say we shouldn't inspire young people and to urge them to do good for the Lord, but most importantly, especially from this counsel from Watson, live in light of eternity. Listen to this from, from the Puritan Thomas Watson. Now youth is budding, You are but in the flower of your age. It is too soon to repent. The time has not yet come. 
This temptation is the devil's net by which he draws millions to hell. It is a dangerous temptation. By delay of repentance, sin strengthens and the heart hardens. The longer ice freezes, the harder it is to be broken. The longer a man freezes in not repenting, the more difficult it will be to have his heart broken. The danger of this temptation to delay repentance appears because life is hazardous and may suddenly expire. What security have you that you shall live another day? Life is made up of a few flying minutes. It is a vapor soon blown out. How dangerous, therefore, is this temptation to procrastinate and put off turning to God by repentance. Many now in hell did intend to repent, but death surprised them. So do not neglect right here, right now, get on your knees in your heart and bow before the sovereign Lord of history. Do not neglect today. Do not presume you will have tomorrow. This life, more than anything else, is a preparation for the life to come. So prepare for the life to come. Time is so very short and eternity is so very long. Do not plunge yourself into the lake of fire, the place of God's wrath, for a few short moments of living for your own plans. Prepare for death, prepare for the return of Jesus Christ, live under his comprehensive sovereignty. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not lean on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved today, tomorrow, and forever. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the preaching of his word.